Hey friends, my name is Ryan Hughley. I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I want to welcome you to our podcast. We're working to build a community position to experience God in daily life. Our weekly teaching is one piece of that work. So as you listen to this week's message, my prayer is that you would hear God inviting you to respond to his love and his desire for you. For more information, you can visit ridgeline.church. One of the most frequent points of frustration that we experience in our lives, particularly in our relationships with one another, is the feeling of being misunderstood. Even think back on maybe some tension or conflict you might have experienced in a relationship this week. My guess would be somewhere bound up within it, there is some kind of misunderstanding. Um, And so we all experience that. It happens day to day, over and over and over again. Someone misunderstands maybe something that we said to them. And maybe someone misunderstands something that we did. They didn't, they didn't really understand our intent, our heart behind why we did. And sometimes that's on us. Sometimes we don't communicate clearly. Sometimes people don't really take the time to try to understand. And, and regardless, when there is misunderstanding, it is always, always frustrating. And again, is the source of so much of the conflict and tension we experience in relationships. And the truth is, as frustrating as this kind of day-to-day misunderstanding can be, there is a deeper experience of being misunderstood that in reality does significant damage to our souls. And it's this damage that is done when we walk through life with this sense that, that really no one sees us, that no one really understands us. No one sees how much we struggle. No one's aware of our cries for help. No one sees how heavy and how hard life feels to us. No one sees the depth of emotion that we are carrying and like trying to hold inside. And when that happens, we feel unseen and we feel misunderstood. And my guess is that, I mean, not my guess, I know, and I don't have to be a prophet to know this, we all know what it is to be misunderstood. We all know what it is to have an experience where we don't feel seen. And like many, uh, high school for me was a time of really feeling misunderstood. I had this tendency to lose control of my emotions And I was very competitive uh, as an athlete, and that was the place in which my emotions came out, and I lost control of them. I was very angry and got in a lot of fights. I still hold the school record for the most technical fouls uh, in high school for basketball. I'm very proud of that. That's literally the only record that I hold. I also graduated dead last. Some of you know that. So those are my two... Coming out of high school, they're like, this kid's most likely to go to jail. That's probably what's going to happen. <clears throat> and so as a, as a result of that, by the people around me, I was perceived as very angry and I was perceived as out of control. But in reality, what I was was sad and depressed. And the truth is, I didn't even really understand that until about a year ago, that that's really what was going on inside of me. And so I didn't understand 
what was going on. I didn't understand myself, which is common for many of us. And so I didn't know how to ask for help. And clearly no one around me really understood and, and offered to help. And so no one seemed to really understand. And so as a result of that, I very much in my small little private Christian school felt that I was treated as a black sheep and it was hurtful and it was confusing and it was very lonely. But you know, there's a bigger problem when it comes to our longing to be understood. And the bigger problem is this feeling that many of us live with, like God himself does not see us. Like God himself does not really understand us. And here's how this often happens for us. We go through something in life and we have an opinion about how God should respond. It's typically when we're in some, some experience of distress of some kind. So we go through something hard and we've got this opinion or conviction about, man, if God was really good, surely this is how God would respond. Because if God really saw what I'm going through, if he understood what it is that I'm experiencing, surely he would respond in the way that I think that he should. And then when he doesn't, which he, I don't know if you've experienced this, he often doesn't do what I think he should do. And when that happens, somewhere inside of us is this felt belief that he must not see us or that he must not really understand what it is that we are walking through. And the effects of that feeling and that experience are almost endless. We often feel very alone. Sometimes we feel completely abandoned by God. Oftentimes, either consciously or unconsciously, we begin to act out in certain ways. We sometimes grow very resentful toward God, resentful toward the people around us, because there is this longing inside of us that is pleading, will someone please see me? And so here's the good news. There is nothing that happens inside of you and nothing that happens outside of you that God does not both see and understand. There is nothing that happens inside of you that God does not see and understand. There's all kinds of things going on inside of you you don't see and understand and that I don't see and understand, but God sees and understands. And there are so many things going on outside of you in your life that either have gone on, are going on, or will go on that you will not understand, that some people will not be privy to, that they won't see, but God sees and he understands. And, and I never want you to just take my word for it. We don't ask you to come here every single week so we can just like spit some things that feel sentimental and good at you. We wanna know that these things that we believe have been declared by God in his word. And so this morning, I want to look at what I find to be both somehow a very unsettling, but also very comforting story in Genesis chapter 16. It is unsettling because of so many of the horrible things that take place in it, but it is, it is comforting because of how God, good we see God being in the midst of it. And so if you have a Bible or an app that you like to read on, turn with me to Genesis chapter 16. And we're going to look at this story that takes place really between three people, a man named Abram, his wife Sarai, and this Egyptian slave woman named Hagar. Now, just for the sake of context, I'm not sure that everyone uh, is really looped in on Abram's life. Later on, God renames him as Abraham. 
Now, Abram was called by God as a younger man to leave his home and to follow God. And God even tells him, uh, I want you to come and to follow me to the place that I will show you. So he doesn't tell him where he's going. Adam just goes, okay, God just said, take a step. And I'm trusting that he's going to show me the next one when I need that. And so Abram and his wife, Sarai, leave with very little to go on other than trust and a promise. God spoke a promise over Abram's life that he would be the father to a nation. And as often as is the case, this promise had bound up in it a pretty significant problem and this huge obstacle, mainly the fact that Abram and Sarai were barren and couldn't have kids. So how, how exactly do you go of, of producing a nation through your line when you can't have kids? And that's the context of what is happening in Genesis chapter 16. They have had this promise. They are, as we come to this chapter, they are living in Canaan. They've been there for, it's been over a decade since God made this promise to Abraham. So just think about carrying that for that long. Some of us, we feel like God has said some things to us, but oftentimes there's this massive delay between a promise being delivered by God and then him fulfilling it. We see a very long pattern of that throughout scripture. We experience it in our own lives as well. So for a decade, they're living in Canaan going, Phew, still barren, no babies. How does this promise come to be? And so Genesis 16 begins the answer to that. So do me a favor and look down at Genesis chapter 16, verse one. If you don't have a Bible, it's gonna be up on the screen, but it starts like this. It says, Abram's wife, Sarai, had not borne any children for him, but, he, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Now I wanna pause there for just a second because what we see taking place in this chapter is something that God does throughout the entire Bible and something that God is still doing today. God is working in and he is working with and he is working around severely broken people. Genesis 16 is an unsettling story because of how many horrible things are happening in this story. And, and sometimes we have a tendency to forget that just because the Bible reports something that did happen, it doesn't mean that God approved of what was happening. Does that make sense? So in this sense, this, this, is, this is like, this is just the, the story being told of what happened because people have taken, because we see like some pretty awful stuff. We see misogyny, we see slavery, we see sexual abuse, all of those things taking place in Genesis chapter 16. And people have, have taken uh, stories like this and go, well, see, God must be pro things like polygamy. God must not care about sexual abuse. Maybe God doesn't really care about slavery. And that is what happens when we make this big mistake that just because the Bible reports something that did happen, it does not mean that it's what God wanted to happen. If anything, Genesis 16, and I don't know, the whole Bible is actually one big cautionary tale of here's what happens when you don't do life God's way. And so as we read this story, we see terrible things that decisions that are made, behaviors, systems, practices that were common in the day. And we also see these people's lives are not awesome. It's just one big mess. So we have Abram, we have his wife, Sarai, who has been unable to have kids, and she has this Egyptian slave named Hagar. Look at what happens next. Sarai said to Abram, 
Since the Lord has present, prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her, I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan 10 years. He slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. When she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. Abram replied to Sarai, here, your, your slave is in your hands. Do whatever you want with her. Then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. It's gross, right? Like the whole thing is just such a big mess. This is, this is an example of Abram and Sarai deciding, you know what? We are going to take matters into our own hands. We have waited 10 years. God has either forgotten about his promise. He's not paying attention to us or he no longer cares. And so we are going to see this thing through by our own efforts and work. And so Sarai decides that she is going to follow what was a very common custom in their culture rather than to trust God for provision. It was very common in this culture that when a woman could not bear children, that if she had some sort of slave or servant, she had the, uh, the authority and the power to be able to give that woman to her husband in hopes that she could bear children and then she would be the mother of those children. Just think about that. That was normative in their culture. And it's really easy, I don't know about you, it's very easy for me to stand in judgment at this moment in particular over Sarai going, what, what is she thinking? But try to understand her position because she's in a really bad position too. A woman in this culture who could not produce children, she was like on her own. There was even a rabbinic rule that if a woman could not produce children in 10 years, a guy could divorce her. So she has got all kinds of fear that she is carrying that leads her to this place of going, well, I, I guess I need to take this into my own hands or I'm going to be in, in, in really significant trouble. So I'm not saying that in any way justifies what she does, but I do think it's important we do the work to try to put ourselves into these situations because we've all been in a situation like that where maybe rather than trust God for provision or for protection, we take matters into our own hands. That is the essence of the decision that Sarai makes. And so the real victim in this whole thing, more than anyone else, is Hagar. Think about the psyche that this woman must have lived with. First and foremost, she's a slave. You know how we know that? Because six times in these verses, we're told, Hagar, the Egyptian slave, that's her identity. So she has no personal dignity, no value apart from what she can produce for these people that in essence own her. She is uh, just given to Abram, like if you look in the text, the language that's used is Hagar, or uh, Sarai took Hagar and gave her to Abram. You know, not one time is Hagar addressed in these opening verses. Abraham and Sarai never speak to her. They speak about her, but then there's just this image of her being taken, her being given to Abram, and then she is used to produce a child. She is nothing but a tool used for her womb. 
There is every, in, in our culture, what we would call that is rape. When a one woman is taken and given to someone, she has no ability to say anything. She has no ability to say no. That's what it is. And I think it's so important that we don't whitewash the Bible. The Bible makes no effort to whitewash itself. And so we have to be very careful not to do that either. This woman would have lived her whole life unseen, feeling overlooked, disrespected, dishonored, and misunderstood. And so then she gets pregnant, and she begins to feel contempt towards Sarai, to which my response is, frickin' duh. I think that's pretty valid. But Sarai does not like that very much, like her whole plan's not going the way that she wants it to go. And so she then starts to complain to Abraham, who's the real failure in this story, by the way, because at no point, like when Sarai came to him, he should have understand that as like, hey, we all have moments where we freak out a little bit. He should have been like, babe, I love you. You're my wife. We are going to trust God to provide. Instead, he's like, oh, okay, I'll take her. <laughs> he's the big failure in the text. But Sarai can't handle what has happened. And so she begins to treat Hagar horribly. In fact, the language that is used, uh, the text, our text says mistreated, but the same word is used in Exodus chapter 1 when it describes the treatment of the Hebrew slaves living in Egypt years, uh, generations after this. So what is really happening is Sarai begins to abuse Hagar. And Hagar fears for her life and her safety so much that she runs away from this abuse which then brings us to verse seven. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, which is on her way back to Egypt. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be, will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, you have conceived and you will have a son. You will name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all his relatives. So she named the Lord, which is unbelievable. I'm going to come back to that. So she named the Lord who spoke to her. You are El Roy. For she said, in this place, have I actually seen the one who sees me? This is why the well is called Bir Lahai Roy. It is between Kadesh and Barad. So this phrase, angel of the Lord, is one that appears a multitude of times throughout the Old Testament. And sometimes it literally speaks of an angelic being who has come to help, to comfort, to do something that God has instructed uh, this angelic being to do. But there are other times that, that what we, like we see here with Hagar, where you can tell in the language and the dialogue, she wasn't just speaking to an angel, she was speaking to, the text says, the Lord. So this is what scholars call a Christophany or a theophany. It's an example in the Old Testament where we see the pre-incarnate Jesus interacting with people throughout the Old Testament. So if you are of the theological conviction that Jesus did not exist, 
until he was born uh, in Bethlehem, that would be incorrect because we see these examples of him interacting with people throughout the Old Testament. So this isn't just Hagar talking to an angel. This is Hagar talking to Jesus. And notice that Jesus launches into this interaction with two questions. He says, asks, where are you from and where are you going? And she answers the first question, but she never really answers the second my conviction is because I don't think she knows where she's going. She just knows where she's come from, and I had to get the heck out of there. So she answers saying, I'm, I'm, I've run away from my mistress, Hagar. And then there's something curious that happens that we need to understand, or we're going to get uh, this kind of, we're going to misunderstand Jesus. Because notice that Jesus says, I want you to go back. Just consider that for a second. Consider the weight of that command. She had to have been thinking, go back. Are, are, are you not listening to me? What I just left, like this woman was horrible to me. I've been like, you know, I'm a slave. You know what I've been through and you want me to go back. But the truth is two things. One, while it is difficult for us to understand, this was a protective decision by God because the state that she's in as a unmarried pregnant woman on her own was terribly more dangerous than what she had come from. And so while it may be confusing to us and may not make sense to us, and while we have to be so, so careful to never use something like this to ever tell a person that they should stay in an abusive situation, God tells her to go back because he knew that she was in far more danger where she was headed than where she had been. And it isn't just this command to go back and continue to be abused. Notice he makes her a promise. He tells her, I'm not, I see you, I'm not done with you, I'm gonna produce a nation through you. And we see that begin to take place as she is pregnant, he tells her, with Ishmael, which means God hears. Think about how comforting that is to a woman that I can almost guarantee had cried out in affliction her entire life. For her to hear from God himself, I have heard your cries. And we know that impacted her because she then gets to, and I, don't, I, I, don't, I did not remember this until I was restudying this passage. You know that Hagar is the first person in scripture to name God. She says, you are El Roy, the God who sees me. How awesome, first of all, that you got to name God. That seems like a pretty big deal. But it's also so significant that the very first person to name God in the Bible, number one is a woman, number two is a slave woman, and an outsider in the, sec that she, in the sense that she was not a part of the nation of Israel, which didn't even exist at this point. But she has been this just abused, taken advantage of, misunderstood, unseen slave that has such a powerful experience with God and she is the first person in biblical history to name God. You are El Roy, the God who sees me. She had spent life feeling unseen. And what she finds out in this moment is that she has always, despite feeling misunderstood, despite feeling unseen, she has always been held in the understanding gaze of God. 
which is why he is El Roy, the God who sees. Look what happens in verse 15. So Hagar gave birth to Abram's son. Abram named his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. So God begins to fulfill this promise that he has made to Hagar right away. And the point of this story in general is that even, and I want you to hear this, even when you have been abused, even when you have been disregarded, even when you have lived a life of dishonor, even when you have been overlooked, even when you have been misunderstood, God understands you. He understands you, which for me kind of prompts a significant question that I think we should consider for a second, and that is, what does that mean? What does it mean that God sees us? And I think it means at least three things. Number one, it means that God is aware of us, which in and of itself, if you really take a moment to consider that God is aware of you, that's pretty staggering. Think about how many people are, I mean, I don't know the name of every person in this room. Think about all the people that have ever existed at any point in human history and God is aware of each of us. In Luke chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, this isn't going to be on the screen. You don't need to turn there. Just listen. Jesus says this. He says, aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. Indeed, the hairs of your head are all counted, which was easy in my case. I just want to point that out. God didn't have to stretch too hard on that one. But Jesus says, don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. So Jesus' point is, if God is aware of every bird in the sky, he is certainly aware of what we experience. We had a weird bird experience, our family yesterday, which I think just as a point of personal therapy I need to share with you. We were driving, all five of us, to Riverton yesterday morning to play pickleball, which I dominated my wife in, I'm proud to admit. She's not here, so all you can do is believe me. Uh, so we're driving down Bangor Highway, which is like, I've only really seen this in Utah. Bangor Highway is a road that you go from 60 to a stoplight like that. It's so unsafe. Anyways, we're driving down Bangor. We're going like 50, 60, whatever the speed limit is, plus 10 probably, let's be honest. <laughs> <clears throat> we're just crossing over the Jordan Trail, you know, that runs like throughout the entire state apparently. And, 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 I'm, and I'm driving along and I see this stork come up uh, off the water. And, and you can see, he's like, I, like we had a, had a real deep spiritual connection, this stork and I, because he's flapping and he just can't seem to speed up enough. And, and he knows what's about to happen. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I, I know what's about to happen too. And this stork kamikazed our car so, so hard. It was like, I don't know if you've ever hit a, that's one thing when you hit a small bird, this, this was like a small dinosaur. It was an enormous bird. It was a terrifying, our car just went silent. We were all just like, did that just happen? And based on the fact that I watched it flip over the car and then could see it hella dead on the other side, it, it was a really, really, it was a just, it was, it, was, it was uncomfortable, okay? I did not, I'm still a little messed up from it. We talked about it all day long. Ryder would just keep going, ah, remember that bird? <laughs> yeah, dude, we all will remember that the rest of our lives. 
So, so here, here's my point in this. If what Jesus says is true, and, and let's try to operate from the presupposition that when Jesus speaks, he only speaks the truth. If, that, if what Jesus said is true in Luke, then God saw and was aware when that bird died. And if God is aware of, of things, and I think that we would all agree that not all life is necessarily equal. Human, and you may not necessarily, a lot of people in our culture don't agree with that. I, I am of the conviction, biblically, that human life is more important to God than animal life. Not that animal life doesn't matter and that we should not protect it and care for animals, but it is not apples to apples, it's not the same. Jesus said that in Luke 12. He says, hey, if God cares about birds, if God's aware of what's going on with birds, certainly he is aware of what goes on with you. So the fact that God understands us means that he sees us, he knows us, and he understands us. But that's not all. In addition, it means that he answers us. He answers us. The psalmist in Psalm 86, verse 7. Hang on, I gotta find it. The psalmist said this. He says, I call on you in the day of my distress, for you will answer me. So the psalmist says, man, I will call on you when life is bad, when life is hard, because I know you are going to answer me. And I wonder if you believe that. That when you call out to God, when you cry out to God, that he will answer you. Could you say that? Now, I do think it's really important that we think clearly on this. Because oftentimes when we have some resentment or frustration that God has not answered us, what we really mean is that God hasn't delivered us the way that we want. And that's not the same thing. God answering us does not mean that God will always deliver us. I don't know about you, but in my experience, God doesn't have a long track record of removing me from difficult circumstances. But that doesn't mean that he does not answer our cries. Sometimes he answers with comfort. Sometimes he answers with strength or courage to endure. Oftentimes he just answers with his presence saying, I'm here. He doesn't always deliver, but he always answers because he understands us. So he is aware of us. He answers us. And then thirdly, the fact that he, has, that he understands us means that he is accessible to us. In Hebrews chapter four, we read this about Jesus. For we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. One of the things that is the most amazing about the God of the Bible is the fact that Jesus stepped into human history and added humanity to his divinity. And he experienced everything that we experienced. He experienced suffering. He experienced difficulty. He felt the full range of emotions that we all feel. He knew what it was to be betrayed. He knew what it was to be misunderstood. He is the only God that I'm aware of in any religious system 
that has lived the life that we have lived. And as a result, when he sees us in our difficulty, when he sees us afraid, when he sees us hurting, he goes, I know what it is to feel that. God's not angry at you when your emotions feel that way. He goes, I know, I've been there. I felt that. He feels sympathy toward us. He understands. And then he offers us mercy and grace to help us because he understands. So when we come to him in our distress and we convey it to him, he says, I understand. I have felt that. I get it. And here is the grace and the mercy that you need to help you in response. Unbelievable. He is aware of us. He answers us and he is accessible to us. So the big question is, how exactly do we go about experiencing his understanding? How do we experience that? And here's my answer to that. We have to cultivate our awareness of God's awareness of us. How's that for a weird sentence? But it's true. We have to cultivate our awareness that God is aware of us. And personally, I have not found any practice to be more helpful in this than the prayer of examine. And there was a few weeks ago uh, in the Here I Am series where I did a whole message on this. You can go back and listen to that. I'm not going to go into it in great detail. But the prayer of examine is a prayer that Christians have been praying for about a thousand some odd years. And it looks back on the last 24 hours trying to recognize where was God at work and how did I respond to it. And just real briefly, for the sake of review, it's really made up of five movements. The first movement is acknowledging uh, God's presence with us. Lord, you are here with me. And asking him for light. Over and over again, the Bible says that God is a God of light. So we're going to look back on the last 24 hours. Lord, we want to recognize where have you been at work? How did I respond? What was going on inside of me? Would you please shine light into these areas that I'm kind of in the dark? That's movement number one. Movement number two is to review the day prior for points of gratitude. Where was, and I would, I would encourage you to make a note of everything you have to be grateful for, no matter how small. So if you walked out of your house and you felt the sun on your face and you even for a moment were like, that's better than snow, then I would write that down. God, thank you. For the warm weather, you read my journal, I've been thanking God for every warm day we've had in the last two weeks. Because when we are thankful for these small things, and what you'll start to notice is I just have this like storehouse of gratitude just in the last 24 hours. So many things that I have to be grateful for. Look at every good thing in your life as from the hand of God, and you will be a more grateful person. So we, second movement is to review the day for gratitude. Third movement is to recognize these two movements and experiences in life that we call consolation and desolation. Consolation is a point, a moment in life where we experience joy. We feel close to God, maybe close to another person. We feel happy. We feel content. We feel at peace. So we're looking for what, what were the points in my day where I experienced that consolation? And on the opposite end, where were the points in the day where I experienced desolation, sadness, fear, worry, doubt, far from God, far from the people in my life? And what you'll find is life's always made up of both. Every single day of your life, you will experience both consolation and desolation. 
Oftentimes in a hard season, we miss where God's good and we just wait for like, I can't wait for life to be good again. Life's never just good, right? Or I'm doing it way wrong. It's never just, there's always both. There's always consolation and desolation in every single day. And so we look back and I would encourage you to specifically pay attention to your interactions with other people. How did those go? Did you experience consolation or desolation? Where was God working in you or through you in the midst of that? The fourth movement is that we then confess because inevitably what we find is we review the day. We begin to see God present in it, inviting us to respond in, in, in ways that are congruent with who he has created us to be. And we fail at that. And so we just confess that to him in the safety of our loving relationship with him. Lord, I missed the mark on this and I'm sorry. Or press into a point of desolation. Why did I feel so fearful in that interaction I had with whoever that person was? Talk to God about that. And then finally, the fifth movement is to ask for help for the day ahead. Now here's what, here's what you find as you begin to allow this to be a regular practice for you. You will find that God is working in the ordinary moments of your life. He is so much more present than what we are often aware. He is with us. He is aware of us. He is answering us and he is accessible to us. And as with all of these longings that we have that we're gonna look at through this series, we as people have a very critical role to play in one another's experience of having these longings met. Meaning we have a responsibility to do our best to understand one another and we tend to not be awesome at that. And so I just wanna end with some practical counsel on how we can better understand one another. Just two things, okay? Two ways that we can better understand one another. Here's the first. Number one, choose to be open over hidden. Choose to be open over hidden. So this is for the person in the, in the position of wanting to be understood. You have to choose to live open rather than hidden. And for us to actually do that, we have to learn to communicate what it is that is going on in us. And this is very, very hard for all of us to choose to live in the open rather than to be hidden. And one of the things that makes it so tricky is that good communication is very complicated. Have you noticed that? Have you ever had a conversation where you feel like, I am crushing the clarity? And there's times that I feel like I'm being so clear and Tammy will look at me, it's, happened, it's always in our kitchen for some reason, she will look at me and she goes, I don't understand how you communicate for a living. <laughs> and then I will look back on what I thought was so clear and go, that's a fair point. Sometimes we're, we're just not very clear because communication is very, very difficult. I was doing some reading on communication this week. You've probably heard most of this, but do you know that communication, clear communication is made up of only 7% content, meaning like what you say, whether someone understands what you're communicating, it's only 7% of it has to do with what you say. In addition to that, 38% is, is bound up in tone, how you say what it is that you're saying. And then the other 55% is all nonverbal. It's body language, it's gestures, which can be hard. Like I, I have just like a angry resting face. I don't know what, it's just, I don't know if it's the no hair or what it is. I just, my face rests in a scowl. It's how God made me, don't judge me. But that can be hard when I'm communicating. Like there's times in conversation right now, I'm like, dummy, get your eyebrows up. Because if they go down, people are afraid. So, <laughs> 
we have to think about the way that these things actually do come across to succeed in relationship and to feel understood. We have to communicate because sometimes some of us feel completely unseen, completely misunderstood, but we are not choosing to live open with another person that we want to be understood by. And we have to face the fact that we have some responsibility in that. We cannot blame people for not understanding things that we are not open about. Make sense? So first thing, choose to be open over hidden. Second one, this is for someone who is trying to understand. Choose clarification over assumption. Choose clarification over assumption. Assumption is the enemy of connection. Always. And we spend so much time in relationship assuming what people are thinking, assuming what a person is feeling, assuming what a person's intentions were behind something that they did. And so oftentimes what happens is we are relating with another person who is pure fiction because we've made them up. We've said, well, this is what this person thinks. This is what this person feels. This is why this person does everything that they do. That person's not even real. We just made them up in our own minds. And so what we can begin to do in conversation is to say, hey, I, I really want to understand what you're saying. I want to understand what it is that you're feeling. And so you seem sad to me. You seem angry. You seem scared. That's seeking clarification rather than just assuming those things. We can also say, hey, I, I really want to understand. And so I just want to know, want you to know when, when you did this, when you said this, this is how it felt to me. Was that your intent? Because oftentimes it's not. Anytime that we feel, oftentimes in relationship, when we feel hurt or stung or wounded by something, it wasn't that person's intent to do that. Now, if you're in a fight and trying to hurt one another, maybe then. But the average like day-to-day -day stuff that happens that we just always assume this person is the devil and trying to destroy me. That's oftentimes not accurate. We just misunderstand their intent. And so our longing to be understood, our longing to be understood by God, our longing to be understood by one another is, is very, very complicated. It's complicated in our relationships with one another because of our tendency to hide or, or because of our tendency to assume everything about another person. And this longing for us is complicated in our relationship with God, I would argue because primarily our view of him is always too small. We struggle, like everyone in this story in Genesis chapter 16, we struggle just like them to really surrender in trust to the reality that God could possibly have a fuller understanding of what's best than we do. We need to have the humility to acknowledge that. That oftentimes in our pride and in our arrogance, we look at the response or the non-response of God or our perception of that. And we stand in judgment over it going, there's just no way that God could know more than I know. And I love you very much. And God knows way more than you know. And so much more than I know. We really struggle to believe 
that, that somehow God can even redeem the horrors that we experience in this life for good. But he can, no matter what it is. And we may not see it this side of seeing him face to face in eternity, but somehow God works in the midst of all things, the good and the bad, for our good and for his glory. And so as is almost always the case, this comes down to the issue of trust. And so will you begin to draw near to him in hope of building that trust? And so we're going to sing this song that Camilla sang over us just before we started the message again. And I want to invite you to sing this as a step toward building a deeper experience of trust with God. And I want to acknowledge, like, your, your trust of God might be low right now. And you know what God's response to that is? I know. And he's still here. And so I want to invite you to do what you can. And if your trust in God is just real, real small right now, that's okay. God's arms are always open, just saying, just, just come. Come as you are, come as you can, but just come. And so Spirit, we ask that you would help us to do that this morning. Give us the grace and the mercy to help us come to you and to cultivate and build a relationship of trust where even when things don't make sense to us and even when we don't understand you, we don't understand what you're doing as is so often the case that we would still choose to trust that you see us, that you understand us, that you are aware of us, that you answer us, that you are accessible to us. And I pray, Lord, that we would cultivate our awareness of your awareness of us. And I pray that we would be a source of understanding to one another. But none of that happens apart from trust of you. And so I ask, that, Lord, that you would heal the wounds that need to be healed, that you would break the strongholds that need to be broken, and that you would move us to a place of deeper trust even this morning. Lord, I pray that you would help us to do just that. In Jesus' name, amen.